Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology. I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in Miami. And today I'm talking to Michael E. Kerr, author of the book, Bowen Theory's Secrets, Revealing the Hidden Life of Families, published in 2019 by Norton and Company. Michael E. Kerr is a psychiatrist who has specialized in the practice of Bowen Theory-guided family therapy for over 45 years. He became Emeritus Director of the Bowen Center for the Study of the Family in 2011, after succeeding Murray Bowen and directing the center for 20 years. He is president of the Bowen Theory Academy in Islesboro, Maine. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Let's start with the basics. For those of us, or for those of our listeners who don't know, who was Murray Bowen and why should we know about him? Well, um, one person uh, who claimed to know a list of 400 original ideas that the human beings have created in their history he put Bowen theory on the list <laughs> that he had an original idea. He, uh, th- by way of background, he was going to be a surgeon initially from Tennessee, Waverly, Tennessee, east of west of Nashville, and then served in World War II as a medical officer and got interested in psychiatric issues since there was so much of that sort of thing. And so when he came back in 1946, I think he got out, uh, he enrolled to go to uh, Menier Clinic in Topeka to uh, do a residency in psychiatry. And while he was in Topeka uh, at Menninger's, he was a little unusual in that he he had, of course, a cadre of inpatients that were there for sometimes over a year for stays. And uh, so he made it a habit of meeting family members when they came to visit. And uh, which was a little unusual uh, since he was aiming toward being a psychoanalyst where many refrained from meeting the family. So the I guess it, because the transference might be uh, meddled with as a result of that. But then in meeting the family, he made one simple little observation. No matter what the diagnosis, it seemed to be more the severity of the problem, whether it be schizophrenia or depression or manic depressive, um, that there was an incredible link between family members how much the patient was affected by the family and how much the family was affected by the patient and just thought, this is important. 
particularly the mother and the patient, seem to have the tightest uh, connection. And so um, he began to do some research uh, with some of these patients. And I, I won't go into all the details of the research, but it led him to the conclusion that, and to use the term symbiosis, which which was already being used in the mental health field at that time, but he he thought that was the best description, best descriptive word for what he was seeing, that these young adults, it's as if they never resolved their initial symbiotic attachment to the mother, which of course is uh, what normally happens. Do you mind explaining real quick what a symbiotic relationship means? Well, in a sentence, it's, it's as if a, law, a feeling is that loss of the other equals death, that the, it's an interdependency of the two people on each other that's appropriate you know, in infancy, but development usually follows the, the gradual resolution of that symbiosis as the individual matures and becomes more capable of doing things for himself or herself. And it was as if that never happened with these patients, that they were still as connected to their mothers in particular as they, uh, and that's what his initial study was watching the mothers and the patients particularly. Um, but at, at age 21 or whatever they were, when he observed them interacting, it was as if they're still like one person and, uh, and neither seemed to want to give that up. Although, so anyway, he, long and the short of it, there's a lot more to the story at Menninger's. He was there for nine years, but he, uh, he decided then to do a project to study this symbiotic relationship and he chose patients diagnosed to have schizophrenia. He could have chosen patients with severe substance abuse, severe depression. He, for whatever reasons, I don't really know for sure. He, he did choose schizophrenia and was able to move then, leave Menninger and go to the National Institutes of Mental Health to their clinical center where he set up a research board in which mothers and adult schizophrenic offspring would live on the ward. Uh, and he would study symbiosis. And the main thing he learned there in the first year was that it was much more intense that he realized that idea that loss of the other feels like death. But also fathers were visiting. And I don't know all the observations that went into that, but the fathers he saw were having some kind of impact on what was going on between the mother and the patient. He couldn't leave the father out. So he began then to bring, by the second year, bring the father, the mother, the schizophrenic adult offspring, and a sibling. If they had a sibling who, and typically that sibling was more normal or relatively normal. 
So now he's studying the family as a unit. And I say he, he had a research team that included nurses and social workers and other psychiatrists. And they had a chance to observe directly the interaction between family members and record that carefully. And so instead of just listening to what people said about their families, they actually could watch it and uh, see what really happened. For example, a, a, uh, a young girl who had been hospitalized with psychosis and had improved suddenly relapsed. And uh, Bowen posed to the nurses, well, did anything happen? And when he asked the father, he said, no, he, she just broke down. And in the nursing notes, very clearly, he had said a very critical remark of the daughter, and that pushed her back into a relapse of sorts. And then um, he also saw that, the, that these two parents, and that was still in the day of schizophrenogenic mothers. Can you explain that idea for our listeners who have never heard it before? Well, that um, the idea was it came and was reinforced by a number of well-known psychiatrists that the the mother of a schizophrenic was um, playing a role in him becoming schizophrenic because that she was inadequately loving and involved with him or her, and um, and parents got to be known as schizophrenogenic. But when he saw that they had raised one child who was fit the criteria of schizophrenia and another child who was functioning quite normally then he began to question you know or, or, I guess they're not schizophrenogenic with all their kids just the one and in watching fathers mothers schizophrenic offspring and siblings interact he said came to the idea this this family is really functions as a unit. It's an emotional unit. It's the only way I can seem to understand it because what happens between the mother and the patient heavily depends on what's going on between the mother and the father and the father and the patient. And then the other sibling is somewhat involved in this process too. And so that led to the idea, well, a big change also was that cause and effect thinking was not going to work in trying to describe the complexities of family relationships that that's where he got the idea of applying systems thinking to what he was observing because it was a much better way of uh, tracking and describing what was going on and systems meant that uh, that person A says something to person B, B gets upset. Did person A cause B to get upset? Or when B gets upset, it, uh, it rattles back and affects person A. And there is a relationship interaction always present so that you can't just look at one person, you got to look at it as a reciprocal interaction, whether it be mother, offspring, 
adult offspring that's schizophrenic or mother, father, or mother and father with the other sibling. Anyway, and he got a better sense of the characteristics of the fact that he eventually developed a concept of the triangle uh, where two people can stabilize their relationship by focusing on a third is the most obvious example. And they sort of identify the anxieties they're having as being caused by the third, and the third winds up in the outside position. And that, so he was describing the triangle involving the father, the mother, and the schizophrenic offspring, but also recognizing that the triangle involving the normal sibling just seemed less filled with anxiety. It was a, a much more mature interactions between parent and offspring than was true with the schizophrenic one where the parents were immature in relationship to that one, overprotective, for example, uh, often blamed on the fact that, well, he's schizophrenic, we need to protect him. But just to be clear, you're saying that, that Bone regarded the parents as displaying immaturity, not, not the patient in those triangles. Well, both. Both. I mean, the patient would have immature responses. In other words, it's like the more anxiously the mother focuses on the offspring, the more the offspring anxiously focuses back on the mother. And they sort of, like a Chinese finger trap, they get trapped with each other. And in that, it forms a very powerful but immature attachment. The word he chose to over symbiosis, although it's still a good word, was calling that it's as if these two people have fused together into one person. And so he came up with a concept of emotional fusion, meaning this is much more than a cognitive process. It's anchored in emotions, emotions that are uh, human beings have in common with other forms in life, like the amygdala, for example, a part of the brain involved in many different emotions, is present in all the mammals and, and even beyond. And so that the idea is that the roots of this are very deep and very ancient, but they're expressing themselves in a mental illness, meaning the schizophrenic has these delusions and hallucinations, a disturbance in mental functioning, but in point of fact, uh, it's better understood as a, emotionally driven. And he theorized about that at that point in time. In, in other words, he's proposing that, or was at the time, that the schizophrenia he was observing in these patients was a response to something about his or her caregivers or a response to the way that his or her caregivers are interacting with the patient? Yes. And the key here is uh, the concept of self. That, And that's where there's another concept in the theory called differentiation of self. Normally, in the early years, there's an intense symbiotic connection because the infant is rather helpless 
and needs a lot of caretaking. And then as the infant matures physically, uh, biologically, uh, he's also maturing psychologically. And as has been shown in studies in other primates, for a successful separation between offspring and parent to occur, it requires both individuals. In other words, a parent has to be able to let go of the protectiveness at the appropriate time and not be so anxiously concerned about uh, that can the kid handle this? And then because if the parents don't separate, it's very unlikely the kids will separate. And so that they don't, this theory we call it, don't differentiate a self, meaning a self would be the ability to, as an adult, to have pretty good regulation of one's emotions and the capacity to delay uh, responding to the anxiety of the moment and retain long-term thinking and not just react to the feeling side uh, when that's needed. And um, so a schizophrenic person really has the same, in my view, the same emotions that we all have. And, but yet his ability to manage those emotions is severely impaired because he never developed much of a self is the idea. Whereas his normal sibling was freer to sort of separate from the parents because the parents were not so involved with him. And that allowed him to differentiate more of a self from the parents and also to explore the outside world with more interest and curiosity and assemble over the course of his development, a pretty good level of self. I happen to believe this because I grew up with a schizophrenic offspring. And when I first heard Murray Bowen talk about this, what really impressed me, I was a junior medical student at Georgetown University. And we had speakers come in in a course called Mechanisms of Disease. And Murray Bowen came in and uh, talked about, he was just not too many years away from his NIMH research, and then he moved to Georgetown at the end, late 50s, after five years at NIMH. And uh, anyway, all through my, my first, my brother got his diagnosis just before I started medical school. Now, he had been having problems before that, and that gets into other aspects of what schizophrenia is. But um, then my father, um, it's a long story. I won't go into it in detail. I do write about it. Uh, my father died suddenly in that summer before I, and the things just unraveled between my mother and my brother, Billy, and my other brother and I decided we've got to do something and eventually put him in a psychiatric hospital. And that's where he got the diagnosis. Uh, he was uh, 27 years old, I guess, at that point, which is a little later than usual, but he had uh, all the what are so-called negative sy symptoms of schizophrenia. In, in other words, 
one of which was when it was time for him to move on into adult life. It, with considerable effort, they got him into a local college because they had a neighbor who was on the board there. And they, they and Billy went and did no studying, gained tons of weight, and flumped out. They took him back for another semester. It was just a repeat. And from then on, he, he was aimless, no direction, and uh, and but he wasn't actively psychotic. And I describe in the book what I think uh, happened then over the next years that uh, finally led to uh, hospitalizations on a regular basis by looking at family dynamics. So, so just to be clear, you're laying out a, a, a timeline of how several things came together for you. At the time that you were hearing Murray Bone speak for the first time, uh, your father had passed away recently, if I understand it correctly, and your, your brother had just been hospitalized. Is that correct? Uh, he got hospitalized three, about three months later because the tensions between my mother and brother were just off the charts. Yeah, and what I meant to say is I had heard in my training about schizophrenogenic mothers and overprotective but basically hostile, rejecting mothers who didn't provide the kind of mothering that was needed and that these kids were suffering, in essence, from a lack of love. And when Bowen des described the, the unresolved symbiosis and how the mother is just so tied to the kid, they're inseparable, it went, bingo, that's my mother. And he also talked about the mothers in a positive light. He wasn't blaming in any way. This is what happened in this family and uh, and then also said it has multi-generational roots and I I got really interested in that although I wasn't going to be a psychiatrist at that point but I always remembered him and then when I got back to finish my medical internship instead of becoming a cardiologist I decided to try a year of psychiatry and in the second year I ran into Bowen because he was in the Department of Psychiatry there at Georgetown, where I was. And I just got supervision with him at my request, and off we went. I never looked back, and uh, I knew systems theory and looking at the family as a unit fit perfectly in describing what I grew up with. And uh, so that was part of the reason I was sure the man was was right. and that he had forged a really novel trail. And, um, and a lot of family therapists at that time, family was just coming into its own in the, in the 50s and 60s and on into the 70s. And a lot of family therapists saw the family kind of as an organism, but they were trying to, using psychological mechanisms to try to explain how this interdependency comes to be. And Bowen cho chose to anchor it in evolution. So basically the theories, facts about human behavior, facts about 
human beings as a product of evolution and systems think systems thinking being the link between those two bodies of knowledge. And nobody else has done that. I mean, the sociobiologists who look for, study social groups <coughs> in uh, all kinds of animals and to try to extend it to the human, they've been very unsuccessful at doing it, in my opinion, uh, largely because they, they never did the research to look at family as a unit. And that's what made it possible for Bowen to see some of these evolutionary links. But perhaps you could tell us a, a little bit more about at the time that Bowen was developing these ideas, how exactly he differed from other, other people writing about human psychology or about psychotherapy. Well, he developed his own method of therapy, um, at NIMH, the called family group therapy. Um, and then eventually began to see more clearly the role of the parents in what was going on in the family and began to eventually focus primarily on the parents, maybe seeing the identified patient, as they used to call it, uh, once in a while, if it seemed useful to the patient. But the main idea was that if this family is going to change, the leadership has to be exerted from the top. You can't expect the schizophrenic offspring to take the lead. The parents are going to have to do it. And at NIMH, he had several examples of that that uh, are hard to reproduce because that was in an inpatient setting. But for example, uh, a father who's consistently supported his wife's anxious, anxious focus on their young adult schizophrenic daughter, after listening to Bowen and, and hearing about things there, decided, I'm, my wife is an anxious, anxious woman, and I get so anxious around her, I'm no help to her. And I've just got to get my own anxiety under control and quit deciding with her and keeping this focus on our daughter. Well, when he, when he changed, of course, that's developing a little bit more of a self, not acting on the anxiety of the moment. And when he was able to do that, the wife freaked out. Why are you deserting me? Uh, and he was able, in a fairly neutral way, to say, I've been part of the problem. And I don't want to continue to be part of the problem. I think our daughter reflects something about our family relationships, which is quite an insight. And then that calmed the wife down and gave her the courage to take a stand with the daughter's push for more protectiveness. Because the kids, even as young adults, they push for this because they need the parent at this point. But the mother was able to take a stand. And the daughter's psychosis improved dramatically. And that, that really formed a basic model for the theory from then on. And other family therapists were, nobody had developed a theory, new theory. Uh, people tried to borrow systems ideas from him, or some, some borrowed systems ideas from cybernetics 
and general systems theory, but they didn't have the specific knowledge about the family that Bowen got from his research. But do you mind if I ask to go back to the example, because it's such a compelling one. In that, how does Bowen theory or how does systems theory understand why or how the schizophrenic daughter got better? Well, that the, 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 um, she calmed down. When the mother calmed down, the father calmed down, the daughter calmed down. I mean, we often uh, summarize the therapy is first you get the anxiety down, and then you try to differentiate a self. And uh, it's hard to know which comes first there. But the idea here is that chronic anxiety is is a driving force for the symptoms of the schizophrenic, both the positive delusions and hallucinations and the so-called negative, having no direction or purpose in life and just moving back home and wanting to stay in their room and not go anywhere. Um, so how did systems theory and systems, family systems therapy come to become, come to be such a household name? I mean, he starts off studying a very specific population, but uh, today anyone who studies psychology and does therapy knows about Bowen. How did that come to be? Well, he, he when he moved to Georgetown, he began to spend more time looking at all families from reasonably high level functioning all the way down to schizophrenic level functioning or severe psychopathic functioning and other manifestation of an unresolved attachment. And uh, so he, the theory became comprehensive and it was a, he was the only one who really had a theory. Others had <clears throat> concepts, and like people like Sal Mnuchin was another famous one, but nothing, no overarching theory that was based in the human as a product of evolution, uh, like Bowen it, did. It's, it, it's, cl it's clear that he really spoke to you, uh, uh, not just on an intellectual level, but on a on a personal level, when did you decide that you were going to write a book about systems theory? Well, I wrote one. Uh, I was approached by Norton. How about writing a book for us? And W.W. Uh, Norton, the publisher. And we had been working on a system of family evaluation. This was back in the 1980s when Bowen was still alive and uh 1985 or so and and since we had been as a group working on a method to assess families and to assist them for doing that i said to dr bowen i'd like to write a book about this but i think your name ought to be on it too because it was your idea a lot of this is just your ideas and so i i think and so he agreed uh, so I wrote the bulk of that book, and then uh, he wrote an epilogue that was uh, really popular and has been well-read since. And the book uh, took off. The Atlantic Monthly liked the concept of differentiation of self, thought something new since Freud, differentiation of self, because it means something different. Because uh, self is, is sort of assessed in how people 
actually function in relationships. And that's kind of a basis for understanding or observing how much self or lack thereof. And like I gave the example from NIMH where the husband saw his role, anxious role, and how he was not being an individual in his own right and decided, I need to change me and did what he did and it benefited uh, the wife. So how it got to be, Bowen, he was terribly misunderstood, almost particularly the concept of differentiation. People were hearing it as repression and uh, yeah, as, repression? as if he were repressing feeling. And it's not that at all. It's understanding the role of the feeling system for better, for worse. I think we've learned a lot since Bowen's initial writing about that, that the feeling system is essential to good cognitive functioning. And, uh, but it can be overdone, but it's critical in decision-making and improving the efficiency of the brain. And so that it's the making thinking and feeling a working team was kind of the way the theory wound up describing it, where you can, you can understand the difference between a thought and a feeling and better differentiated people can do this and, and poorly differentiated people have a very hard time distinguishing thoughts from feelings and are more feeling driven uh, and better differentiated people can self-regulate better, manage emotions better, think long-term when that's important to do, but also confuse into the, a relationship with all the recognition that being attached to somebody is, is essential for having a reasonably good life and it contributes. We all need these attachments. And it's, the basic theory is that this is just overdone. And the, when it's overdone, the interdependency between the people becomes greater and greater and greater, which makes their sensitivity and reactivity to each other harder and harder to control because they're so dependent on each other. And you see this so clearly in families with schizophrenia. And I could give you more examples of how that works, even in better differentiated families. So it, it, uh, the family therapy movement, uh, it didn't really grasp what he was getting at. Uh, one of the famous therapists once quipped, uh, oh, poor Murray Bowen, he differentiated from his family. Now he has no family as if this was a, a distancing thing, when in point of fact, differentiation permits more emotional closeness uh, between people. Bowen liked to say that if he had to reduce his theory to one simple statement, it explains how two people can start out a relationship and be very close, but then over time become more and more distant and some more than others. And he said, my theory explains how this happens. And it does, the specifics of what creates this emotional distance between people who basically care about each other and want the closeness, but at the same time can feel allergic to too much of it and it can make it unstable. You, so what does systems, how does systems theory explain 
that kind of uh, distancing that happens over time between people who are otherwise very close. Well, um, I once in, in presenting this at a meeting one time, I found a cartoon uh, where a man was sitting on the couch and the wife was looking unhappy. And I forget if it said that she, he didn't talk enough or he didn't show enough emotion. And, and his response was to his wife, well, my emotions are encrypted to preserve the stability of our marriage. And I thought that was a very nice description that in other words, two people are trying to interact and then one becomes disapproving of the other and the other, you know, becomes intimidated by that and maybe gives up self to the relationship for peace and harmony. That's one of the ways it, it plays out that people, I remember asking a, a wife who was really in a puddle with drinking and depression, a husband who identified the problem as hers and he would distance from her because she was pretty intense and miserable and she felt blocked in ever uh, connecting with him. And it all starts out, I mean, they had a good courtship, a good early marriage. Sometimes when the first kid comes, there's a big change. But it's the emotional sensitivities, reactivity. My uh, little formula I often use is that uh, social cues, people react to social cues and we all do, every human being does. The four I call up are need for approval, uh, uh, concern with expectations. Is the other meeting my expectations? Am I meeting theirs? Uh, the uh, reactivity to upset in the other and distress yeah, in the other. Uh, there are four and I'm forgetting one right now, but attention, approval expectations and distress that that's in both people and the sensitivities people have because the poorly differentiated people are very reactive to diff uh, disapproval real or imagined and lack of attention and that's one of the things they fight about or expectations unmet and all these kinds of reactivity can destabilize relationships and one way to try to stabilize it is reduce the intensity of the interaction with distance. There are other patterns described in the theory, like the triangle, the two people, two parents struggling with each other by focusing on a third can shift a lot of the anxieties from their relationship into the interactions with the third. But then the third, say my schizophrenic brother, inherits a lot of the weaknesses of the family in that way he grows up in an anxious field and he has a sibling like my brother did who uh, was in a very different position in the family and could develop a little bit more self not dramatically more but more to fashion a, a more orderly stable life are there parts of bowen theory that you disagree with you know, I've never found a disagreement. I'm always, my, I, I call my pursuit of 
Bowen theory these days, a scientific inquiry. And I got that term from a famous biologist. And his idea was scientific inquiry is any mixture of empiricism, theoretical thinking, or um, I'm forgetting the third one at the moment, that suits the investigator. Empiricism, theoretical thinking, and oh, uh, intuition that suits the investigator. And I'm always on the lookout in the sciences for what's consistent with Bowen theory and are there any inconsistencies? And by, you know, I follow neuroscience and I follow the biological sciences as best of my ability. And I'm always looking for things that could disprove the theory because it's hard to prove this theory at this point in time. Otherwise it wouldn't still be a theory. Um, but I think that's what keeps me going is, is, um, I've un- investigated a lot of different problems, autism, uh, drug abuse, alcoholism, things, a whole range of, of things, and find that these patterns that he describes and and the concept of differentiation holds up. And the less differentiation, the more vulnerable the relationship, uh, unless it's, Bowen once said, if if it's a fortunate relationship, even though it's not differentiated, it could be stable, and but to keep it stable, it's got to be holding hands, going to the bathroom. <laughs> and never let the board had a lot of one-liners that were good, but never. Anyway, stop. Go ahead. Oh, I'm wondering if there was a part of the book that you were most excited to to write. Well, I wrote a chapter. I liked writing them all, to tell you the truth, because I. I did, I did a second book. I thought to myself, some people said, why would you write a second book? You've already written the first book. I said, well, it's been 30 years since I wrote the first book. I'd like to think I learned something uh, in 30 years. When my wife read the book, she said, this is in your own voice. This is you. And I thought that was a good point. It differed from the first book, which I think was well organized and people found it useful. But this has a different flavor to it. And um, so one of the things I wrote about is the concept of the uni disease, which I'm proposing to add to the theory. And it, it boils down to the idea and that medicine is more and more, I think, supplying and the sciences is relied to medicine evidence for this, that that. No matter what the condition, take a chronic inflammation. We now know chronic inflammation is involved in just about everything, even psychosis, that the inflammatory response can occur in the brain and that can disrupt neuronal connections chronically or, or temporarily. And there are symptoms associated with that. Chronic anxiety can stir up inflammation in the gut the liver, you name it, or it can be acted out uh, in uh, behaviorally, like compulsive gambling uh, or some other way of trying to bind anxiety through some kind of activity that involves the social world and externalizing one's anxieties into the behavior in that way. Um, So for the last 35 or 40 years, I've been looking 
are common denominators in all these various clinical conditions and can identify four or five. See, I think ultimately we need to get a systems theory of the individual in order to connect it with a systems theory of the family. And we don't have a systems theory of the individual yet. A theory that could suggest that this is a, I'm not saying this is right, but this is my current thinking about it. An overall disturbance in bodily homeostasis can manifest in dysfunction in one of the bodily organs or tissues. Uh, that the, and it can shift around depending on your genetics and exposure to bacteria or whatever. And, but that the uh, chronic inflammation would be one easily observed process that seems to be present in just about every physiological uh, uh, condition or that fuels disease. Um, not too long ago, people were treating cancer patients uh, with an anti-inflammatory, excuse me, heart patients with an anti-inflammatory. Atherosclerosis is well known to be uh, mediated by a lot of inflammation. And I believe you know, inflammation is part of the stress response and chronic, chronic anxiety, in my theory anyways, can ag uh, activate the stress response chronically. And you get these low levels of inflammation that are, that are very dangerous. When you have a lot of anxiety, acute anxiety, you, you get anxious, you deal with it, and it goes down. But chronic lingers, 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 and that can gradually wear down the tissues. And it, and so that anyway, I got away from the study where they treated pa patients who had recently have a heart attack with anti-inflammatories and then followed them for six or seven years to see if the people on the anti-inflammatory versus control group, group were any less likely to have another heart attack. And they were. The anti-inflammatories were associated with a very low recurrence of another coronary where the people in the placebo or the control group, whatever it was, they had a much higher rate of recurrent coronaries. And, and then they also realized, somebody realized that many of the patients in this heart disease group had had a cancer and but were treated for it and were doing well and so somebody decided let's go look at cancer recurrence when they're on this anti-inflammatory and discovered that the anti-inflammatory reduced the incidence of cancer recurrence as well as heart attack and Siddhartha Mukherjee, I may have heard of him. He's written a lot of really interesting books. But he said, it, this is amazing. We're, we're identifying the same physiological process key in two completely different diseases. And that's what my uni disease is aimed at. It's more than just inflammation. Um, 
but that's one of the processes. And there's a cardiologist at Brigham uh, Women's Hospital who has a very similar idea, but most of the people looking at chronic inflammation do not really consider the stress response. I think medicine still shies away from that as an important factor. And so the idea would be that that people who develop a condition of any kind, there's a whole lot of uh, similarities between the various conditions if you're looking at the physiological processes that drive it. so that's the unique disease idea. Michael, we're almost out of time. Do you want to tell us about where you're, what you're working on now? Well, uh, I'd like to write a book on cancer uh, and, and not a book on cancer, a paper and get it published in a medical journal like theoretical biology or something like that, um, that would get circulation in the medical scientific community. Uh, that I think I have enough information now to support it as a valid hypothesis because I can't prove this, but a valid hypothesis that, um, that chronic anxiety has an important impact on cancer. It's uh, maybe not its development, but its progression. And a lot of that is already proven. and. What's unique about Bowen theory, I think, is Bowen theory is a way of explaining chronic stress that no other, nobody else has that ability. And it's explained it by being able to look at the family unit and see, for example, in the family unit and other social units, uh, how chronic stress is generated through relationship interactions and, and vicious feedback loops. So I want to I want to write a paper about that, and I think it'll be my next project. Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for uh, writing this book and introducing so many of our listeners to Bowen's theory and and Bowen's thinking. And when the next book is out, we would love to have you back. And again, the the book is entitled Bowen's Theories, Secrets, Revealing the Hidden Life of Families. And my guest has been Michael E. Kerr. Thank you, Michael.